0: TED Audio Collective. I advise companies on lots of different issues. And you know what one of the most challenging parts is? Getting to consensus. Making sure that there's buy-in and agreement on XYZ decision or document or vision or plan. And the reason that getting to consensus is tough is that often there's no right or wrong answer. And each person or team, or department has something that's true for them, but might not be true for everybody. So the question becomes, how do we decide? Do we need a year-long process involving hundreds, sometimes even thousands of people so that everyone's voice is heard? Or when is a smaller group of decision makers the right choice? I mean, Do more people in a process get us closer or farther away from the truth? I'm Madhup Akinola. This is TED Business. Our speaker today is Catherine Marr, a strategist, technologist, and policy expert. In this talk, she shares a new method for fostering productive conversations and decision-making that can work even when people disagree or have strong opinions. Catherine specifically uses Wikipedia contributors as an example and shows how they're able to unite around bringing free and reliable information to the public, despite their sometimes disparate beliefs. Then after the talk, I'll share some insights on processes that can be used for more effective decision-making in our organizations. But first, a quick break. This show is brought to you by Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like artificial intelligence, big data, robotic revolution, and more. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy as is or customize the stocks in a theme to fit your goals. Learn more... At schwab.com slash thematicinvesting. Hey Ted Business Listeners, we're supported by our friends at Working Smarter, a new podcast from Dropbox exploring the exciting potential of AI in the workplace. Working Smarter talks with founders, researchers, and engineers about the things they're building and the problems they're solving with the help of the latest AI tools tools that can save them time, improve collaboration, and create more space for the work that matters most. On Working Smarter, hear practical discussions about what AI can do so that you can work smarter too. Listen to Working Smarter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit workingsmarter.ai
1: Canva presents stories to keep you up at night Uh, it is lovely to be with you here this evening. So, as you just heard, my name is Catherine Marr, and I used to be, until very recently, the CEO of the Wikimedia Foundation, which is the organization behind Wikipedia. And my tenure coincided with a very strange time for information a global crisis of fake news and disinformation, which meant that our free knowledge movement really sort of stood alone. At the same time, too, we saw a collapse in public trust around the world in many of our critical civic institutions. And one of the reasons for this collapse in public trust in things like public science and an independent free press, and even perhaps in the idea of democracy itself, is that people around the globe are increasingly skeptical about the ability of these institutions to respond to our future challenges and changing needs. And yet, During this time, trust in Wikipedia actually went up, something that surprised us as much as anyone. And so I started wondering, what is it about this organization, this radical experiment in openness, self-governance, and amateurism, and volunteerism, that made it so different? And I've come to believe that in many ways, the things that made Wikipedia implausible are actually what prepare it to respond to our changing world. And make it a place that people love and trust. And so, one of the things about it, of course, is that it is edited entirely by volunteers, ordinary people from all over the world. All of the decisions about encyclopedic content and organizational policies take place in a transparent and open fashion. This means that Wikipedia can continue to change as the world changes around it, integrating new ideas and new perspectives. But I think one of the most critical things that I found really important is that its model pushes us to work together into deliberation and into conversation so that the end result is something that most of us feel is reasonable and fair. Now, easy enough for some things, like articles on animals with fraudulent diplomas, (laughs) (laughs) which is a real article on Wikipedia, But what about the hard things, the places where we are prone to disagreement, say, politics and religion? Well, as it turns out, not only does Wikipedia's model work there, it actually works really well. Because in our normal lives, these contentious conversations tend to erupt over disagreement about what the truth actually is. But the people who write these articles, they're not focused on the truth. They're focused on something else which is the best of what we can know right now. And after seven years of working with these brilliant folks, I've come to believe that they are onto something, that perhaps, for our most tricky disagreements, seeking the truth and seeking to convince others of the truth might not be the right place to start. In fact, our reverence for the truth might be a distraction that's getting in the way of finding common ground and getting things done. Now, that is not to say that the truth doesn't exist, nor is it to say that the truth isn't important. Clearly, the search for the truth has led us to do great things, to learn great things. But I think if I were to really ask you to think about this, one of the things that we could all acknowledge is that part of the reason we have such glorious chronicles to the human experience in all forms of culture is because we acknowledge there are many different truths. And so in the spirit of that, I'm certain that the truth exists for you and probably for the person sitting next to you. But this may not be the same truth. This is because the truth of the matter is very often, for many people, what happens when we merge facts about the world with our beliefs about the world. So we all have different truths. They're based on things like where we come from, how we were raised, and how other people perceive us. Now, you and your neighbor, who's probably a reasonable person, (laughs) you two can probably get together and come to some sort of shared agreement. But what happens when a third person joins the conversation? or a fourth, or a fifth. What happens when we try to expand this out to the scale of all 7.8 billion of us? The reality is we are a vast and varied world. And so when we try to use our personal truths to come to conversations around collective decision-making on important issues, we start to run into problems. Because collective decision-making, the sort of thing that we want to do in democratic and open societies, requires that we get together with common understandings about the root of the problem and some assumptions about how we might get out of it. But if we're using our personal truths to do this, we end up having conversations about our values and our identity. Because remember, our truths come from where we come from. And then we're focusing on what divides us instead of what we can agree upon. And that allows us to start having conversations about the truth in a way that focuses on what we believe, rather than what can be known. And that is a definition that is deeply divisive and harmful. I think about our lack of urgent action on climate change. We've known for a very long time now about the negative impacts of man-made carbon in the atmosphere. But that implications of that data challenge our identities, our industries, our communities, in ways that have led and created resistance and even disinformation. And the resulting public debates about the truth of climate change have prevented us from taking specific and concrete actions that could mitigate the harms to us around rising seas, increasingly deadly waves of heat and cold, and powerful storm systems. With such urgent threats ahead of us, we need better ways to get to shared understanding. Fortunately, I've seen how at Wikipedia, we can come to cooperative and productive conversations around disagreement and decision-making without using one shared truth as our baseline. Its generous and accommodating approach offers us a practical way to take it down a notch, focusing on something a little less stressful, the best of what can be known right now. And the good news is we can know a lot of things. We have high-quality information, facts, and data that allow us to do things like track the migration of endangered species or the spread of a pandemic around the world. These are useful tools in our toolbox, but they don't necessarily alone change minds or unite disparate views. So how do we do that? We shift from focusing on one key truth to instead finding minimum viable truth. Minimum viable truth means getting it right enough, enough of the time to be useful enough to enough people. It means setting aside our bigger belief systems and not being quite so fussy about perfection. And this idea of minimum viable truth is actually a tremendously forgiving idea, which is one of the things I love about it the most. It recognizes our messy humanity it acknowledges space for uncertainty, for bias, and for disagreement on our way to the search for the answers. So one thing you may not know about Wikipedia is that it actually assumes that we are all biased. It is the reason that you are not supposed to write articles about yourselves. Because can any of you truly be neutral about how brilliant and remarkable you are? LAUGHTER I didn't think so. But when we are forced to defend our biases, when we are forced to go into the data and the citations and really engage, grapple with the intellectual struggle that comes from meeting up against other people's biases, our horizons can expand, and we can get to new and better understandings about the world. How does this work? Well, in 2019, a group of researchers released a study looking at how Wikipedia writers take on the most contentious and difficult topics. And what they found was that the system actually works really well. These are some of the best articles on Wikipedia. And many of them are written by people who fundamentally disagree with one another. They also found something interesting, which is that the more that these polarized contributors engaged in conversation, the more balanced and productive their contributions became. Which means that Wikipedia may be one of the only places on the internet where disagreement actually makes you more agreeable. Now, I knew instinctively this is true because I've seen how productive friction can really get us places. How mistakes and debate actually brings people into the conversation. You don't sit back when you disagree with someone because engaging offers you the chance to shape the public record. Through that process, ideas become sharper, better, and more understandable. In this way, the seeds of our disagreement can actually become the roots of our common purpose. All this is very well and good, but what does it mean and how do we actually apply it to other organizations and institutions and systems that we are a part of? in order to increase trust and reduce polarization and perhaps get some important things done. Well, I've already talked a little bit about productive friction, the good kind that makes our ideas better. That is possible because of a few things, notably clear rules and strong community norms. Clear rules help us engage on the substance of the issue rather than debating the identity of the author. Those rules are not upheld by any one individual on high. They're actually maintained and uplifted by the entire community. So we all have a shared sense of responsibility for success. The other piece of this is is that it is essential that decisions are not just made by those who show up in the room. You have to be intentional about bringing all the voices in. When Wikipedia first started, the majority of its authors were Western white men, which led to some really significant biases and gaps in the types of articles that were written and the slant of those articles. Recognizing this by being intentional about undoing some of these systems that were actively excluding people and doing the hard work of actually rebuilding them so that more people would feel welcome in the conversation, we are now able to have a better reflection of the known world. The next piece of this is really about interdependence. The way that the system works is that you cannot go it alone. In order for your contributions to stick, they have to earn the agreement of your fellow contributors, which is a powerful forcing mechanism for people to work together. Next, Next, is the idea of shared power. All of those debates result in 350 edits a minute to Wikipedia, which means that no one person can be in charge of the whole thing. You have to let go of power. You have to give it to other people. You have to trust in their ability to manage the areas of their own expertise and interests. And by doing so, you earn their commitment and agency to make this project work. It also requires humility because you're going to get it wrong some of the times. But getting it wrong some of the time is worth it for getting it right most of the time. And speaking of time, you have to have a very different relationship to urgency. So much in the world is about moving fast. But moving fast has actually broken a lot of things. It's broken our trust, It has undermined our confidence in many of our systems of governance, perhaps even our faith in democracy itself. By slowing down a little bit and bringing the conversation in, by listening with sincerity, debating with respect, consulting widely, and weighing difficult decisions with candor, you can actually build systems that endure. But most importantly, you can build trust, that quality, that is in such short supply right now, and trust in one another is what we need in order to weather uncertainty and take brave action. So what I'm asking all of you today is to set aside your own personal truth for just a minute, for the opportunity to sit in someone else's. It's to endure the productive friction of coming to common agreement with someone who you may not agree with, or perhaps even like, and with just enough rules and a little bit of time, I believe that you can do it. And you just might find, we all just might find, that the most important things that we do are the ones that we do together. Thank you.
0: Support for TED Business comes from Odoo. What's Odoo? Think Odoo. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash tedbusiness. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash tedbusiness. This show is brought to you by Schwab. You're here because you like to keep a pulse on trends in technology. Well, now you can invest in what's trending in artificial intelligence, big data, robotic revolution, and more with Schwab Investing Themes. It's an easy way to invest in ideas you believe in. Schwab's research process uncovers emerging trends, then their technology curates relevant stocks into themes. Choose from over 40 themes, buy all the stocks in a theme as is, or customize to better fit your investing goals, all in a few clicks. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice, or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematicinvesting. I find Catherine's idea of minimum viable truth to be so interesting. It reminds me of a question I often have my students ask themselves. What do I need to believe to feel okay with this decision? And I know Catherine talked about setting aside our beliefs, but what I want people to think about is what is the one thing I need to accept in order to say, okay, we're going to go for this decision. It's a question that, when answered, clears the path to move forward without getting caught up because there are many things that can and do hold up decision-making in our organizations. Think about analysis paralysis, inertia, egocentrism, too much or too little data, lack of motivation, sunk cost fallacy. The list goes on. But if we want to encourage productive decision-making at work, here are a few other things we can do in addition to accepting the minimum viable truth. In 2019, McKinsey & Company conducted a survey of more than 1,200 managers from a range of companies across the globe on decision-making. Their findings showed that it's helpful to first break down decisions by type, then figure out who's responsible for that decision. For example, there are big bet decisions, which are infrequent but usually high risk. A potential acquisition would fall under this category. A decision this big would be handled by the executive team, and to improve this process, have half of the group argue for the potential decision, while the other half prepares an argument against the potential decision. And what do we do with cross-cutting decisions? An example being new product launches. These happen a little bit more frequently than big bet decisions and would be led by senior management who could benefit from a well-coordinated process that helps clarify objectives, measures, targets, and roles. The last decision type is delegated decisions. These are very frequent and low risk, like hiring or making marketing choices. The people who should be responsible for these decisions are the individuals or teams who are closest to the work. When higher-ups give employees the autonomy to make the final call on things that will impact them the most, employees feel more empowered, and that empowerment helps them commit to whatever judgment call they've made in a given situation. So take a moment to think about a decision you know you're going to have to make it work soon. Choose a difficult one. Could one of the practices above be helpful? I would encourage you to try one on for size. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Kiara Powell and fact-checked by Matias Salas. Special thanks to Anna Phelan, Michelle Quint, Corey Hagem and Colin Helms. I'm Madhupa Akinola. Talk to you again next week.